Hi, this is Pastor Robert Blanchard from Lansing First United Methodist Church here in Lansing, Michigan. I just want to take a moment to thank you for checking out our sermon podcast. And if you want to learn more about what we do here at Lansing First, or you want to support us in our mission of going deep, reaching out, and loving Lansing, you can do so online at lansingfirst.org. Thanks. Our third scripture lesson this morning comes from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, It is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The word of God for the people of God. Author of life, we thank you for your word and we ask that your spirit would be with us this morning to transform us in heart and mind and soul. Amen. Thursday marked 40 days since the beginning of Easter, and that is the day on which we remember the ascension of Jesus Christ to heaven. The scriptures don't talk a whole lot about that time between Easter and now. We get some glimpses of Jesus appearing to his disciples, and we get snippets of his instructions, but largely that time in the life of the early church remains hidden to us. What we do know is that on the 40th day after his resurrection, Jesus has one last conversation with his disciples, and then he departs from them. Again, the glimpse that we get of this conversation is rather short. First, he tells his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, telling them that it will not be many days until they are baptized with the Holy Spirit something that we'll get to next week. 
They then ask him whether that means that it has come time for him to restore the kingdom. As Jesus often is on this point, he gives them a nebulous answer, telling them that it's not their responsibility to know the times of God's plans. It is simply their responsibility to receive the gifts of the Spirit and to be his witness in the world. Then, after this final conversation, with the instructions given to wait, receive the Spirit and witness, Jesus is lifted up by a cloud into the heavens. And as he's lifted up, you can imagine the disciples standing there, mouth agape, just staring in wonder. They had seen him do miracles before, but I have to imagine that there is nothing that prepares you for watching your teacher be picked up by a cloud and carried away. So as the disciples gawk at this wondrous sight, they probably didn't notice at first the two strangers who had come to stand beside them. You know those moments when you're so lost in something that you maybe get a little lost to the world around you? Whether you're maybe reading a book or working in the garden or whatever it might be doing that takes all of your focus. And you know how in those moments you don't notice that your spouse or your kids or a friend has come up to say something to you until they kind of clear their throat and start talking? And so you end up jumping just a little bit. I kind of picture that being what happens here with the disciples. They're so caught up in this moment, their eyes are so focused skyward that they probably don't notice these strangers until they start saying, hey, why are you looking up at the heavens? And you can almost see Peter, who's the one that most often gets swept up in these moments, jump out of his skin as the stranger tells them, well, yeah, Jesus went up to heaven, but he's going to come back in just the same way. Almost as if to tell the disciples, there's no reason to just sit here waiting. He'll be back. Now, the ancient Judeans didn't have the adage that a watched pot never boils, but it almost feels like the messengers are telling the disciples, you know, a watched Messiah won't descend. Obviously, the pot's going to boil whether you're staring at it or not, and obviously the Messiah is going to come back, but it doesn't do any good to just sit about doing nothing in the meantime. And that's what I want us to reflect about this morning as we think about the ascension what does it mean for us as followers of Christ to live in a world where we have been left with the responsibility of serving as stewards in the physical absence of our Lord this of course isn't to say that God isn't with us anymore but just that Jesus the human being is no longer dwelling bodily among us so what do we do? It can certainly be tempting to be like those disciples and to just look up at heaven going, well, if I stand here waiting long enough, I'm sure something amazing will happen eventually. And sometimes it's 
tempting to do that, not because we're apathetic or lazy, but because we're just weary. Sometimes we spend so much time in the trenches doing the work, or we've put in so many years of faithful service that we just look up and go, okay, Jesus, don't I get a break now? Can't you come back and clean up the rest of this? And these feelings aren't just felt by those of you out in the pews. There have been plenty of times, especially in the last year, where I and many other pastors have thought, hey, Jesus, now would be a pretty good time for you to come back. You know, even before everything that happened this last year, clergy have really struggled with the expectations and pressures of our work. And I want to share with you this morning some statistics just in case you're not aware of them. Only one out of every ten people that go into ministry will actually make it to retirement as a minister. 50% of clergy burn out within the first five years. 80% of clergy burn out within the first ten years. 91% of clergy have reported feeling burnout at some point in their ministry. And at any given point in time, 20% of clergy are in the middle of experiencing burnout. And all of these statistics come from studies that were done before we entered into a global pandemic. Now, I don't share these statistics to garner sympathy for myself, but so that you understand that the leaders in the church who are called to do ministry full-time feel all of those same feelings of exhaustion and frustration that you may also feel at times. The temptation to throw up our hands and stare at the heavens is very real, especially when we're tired or burned out. But those aren't the instructions that we were given. The final instructions before the ascension were wait, receive, and witness. So let's go through those. What does it mean for us to wait? Well, in this case, Jesus was telling the disciples to wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Many of us have already experienced that, so are we done waiting? Well, no, for us to wait now means that we are waiting on the Lord. We may not be waiting for the act of baptism, but we are waiting on the movement of the Holy Spirit to show us where to go. So we wait when we engage in prayer and we listen for the guidance of the Spirit. When we pray and we enter into mystical communion with the voice of God, we are waiting on God to conform us to his will. We wait when we study the scriptures and step back from the noise of our world. We enter into conversation with God's revelation through our ancestors in the faith. As we recount their encounters with God, we may be better able to see where God is entering into our own lives. We wait by attending to the sacraments of God, whether that means receiving baptism if we haven't, or remembering the vows of our baptism if we have, whether that means being strengthened for the journey by the spiritual food of communion, 
Through the sacraments, we know that we encounter God's grace entering into the world and empowering us for the work that lies ahead. So you can see that as we think about what it means to wait, we've already found answers to what it means to receive. In waiting, we go about the activities that make us more receptive to the Holy Spirit. We wait so that God's will can enter into our lives and conform us to God's love. In waiting and receiving, we look to the heavens only so long as it takes us to refocus our hearts and our minds to look out to the world. We wait and we receive so that we might obediently follow that third instruction to witness. I talked some last week about how we witness through both word and deed, and I want to expand on these thoughts a little bit by drawing on the writings of Pope Benedict XVI. And I know we're Methodist, not Catholic, but we are in the Anglo-Catholic tradition, and there's nothing here that we would disagree with. So his first encyclical, which is to say his first letter addressed to all Catholics, was titled, God is Love. And focusing on what it means for God to be love, Pope Benedict addressed specifically what it means for Christians to engage in acts of love. He begins the second part of his letter by explaining that love is the all-consuming activity of the church through which we witness to the world. We love through our presentation of the word and the administration of the sacraments, but those are responsibilities that fall most often and in unique ways upon ordained clergy. Yet the whole church is called to provide witness. Each of you has a part to play in the witness of the church to the world, and oftentimes that witness is provided through works of charity or mercy. But there are many people and organizations in the world that provide acts of charity. Even here in our own city, there are a number of charitable causes. So what makes our witness as the church different or distinct from the witness of others? Benedict provides us with three distinguishing characteristics for our witness to God through charity. First, he begins by acknowledging that we should be meeting the material needs of our neighbors in front of us and that we should be competent at the tasks that we go about. Now, these are true of any charitable organization, but it reminds us of a couple things. We have an obligation to those immediately around us, and we have an obligation to seek out the help of experts when we don't know how to meet a need ourselves. Where this responsibility becomes uniquely a loving witness of the church is how we go about meeting those needs. He writes, We are dealing with human beings, and human beings always need something more than technically proper care. They need humanity. They need heartfelt concern. Those who work for the church's charitable organizations must be distinguished by the fact that they do not merely meet the needs of the moment, but they dedicate themselves to others with heartfelt concern, enabling them to experience the richness of their humanity. 
I have heard countless times from those who are involved in the nonprofit world how dehumanizing the experience of receiving help can be. When the work of charity is done in such a way that it sees people as simply a mouth to feed or a body to clothe, it neglects the fullness of an individual, it denies people their dignity. We are called to love our neighbor as a joyful response to the love of the Spirit. The people that we serve are more than hungry bellies or exposed skin. They are children of God made beautifully in the image of Christ. When we go about our work with this mindset, we not only celebrate the fullness of their humanity, but we also live into the fullness of our humanity. Second, he states that the charitable work of the church must be free from parties and ideologies. Particularly, he notes that it must be free from those ideologies that would accelerate social unrest for the sake of political revolution. He writes of such ideologies, seen in this way, charity is rejected and attacked as a means of preserving the status quo. What we have, though, what we have here, though, is really an inhuman philosophy. People of the present are sacrificed to the Moloch of the future, a future whose effective realization is at best doubtful. One does not make the world more human by refusing to act humanely here and now. To put this in other words, we cannot rely on ideologies that tell us either that it's okay to let people suffer now for the sake of the future, or that tell us that progress or justice are inevitable. Instead, he says, the Christian's program is a heart which sees. This heart sees where love is needed and acts accordingly. We don't check to see if a person is a Democrat or a Republican before we serve them. We don't ask them if they're on the left or the right, traditional or progressive, conservative or liberal. We help those we see because it is the loving thing to do. Third and finally, our love cannot be conditional. And here... Pope Benedict says it so well that I'm going to read a fairly lengthy quote for you because I can't put it better. Charity, furthermore, cannot be used as a means of engaging in what is nowadays considered proselytism. Love is free. It is not practiced as a way of achieving other ends. But this does not mean that charitable activity must somehow leave God and Christ aside. For it is always concerned with the whole man. Often the deepest cause of suffering is the very absence of God. Those who practice charity in the church's name will never seek to impose the church's faith upon others. They realize that a pure and generous love is the best witness to the God in whom we believe and by whom we are driven to love. A Christian knows when it is time to speak of God and when it is better to say nothing and to let love alone speak. Our witness through our acts of mercy cannot be simply a means to an end. 
Love through charity is not a carrot by which we lure people unsuspectingly into a trap before we pounce on them with demands of conversion. Love is a gift that we give as freely as we receive. There are times when it is right to speak of God, and there are times when our silent action is a better witness than any words could ever be. So let us not spend too long staring at the heavens when there is work to be done around us. Let us wait on the Lord so that we might receive the power of the Holy Spirit in order to witness to God's love through acts of charity that meet the needs of those in front of us in a way that honors their humanity, meets them where they are, and loves them without condition. Amen. Would you please pray with me? God, as we wait upon the movement of your Spirit, give us hearts that are ready to receive your love so that we might go forth and witness to all the world the love that you have planted within our souls. Amen.